Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Western Journeys, to be published later this year by University of Utah Press, is, according to author Chao Lim Go, an essay collection on my adventures in the American West, immigration to America, and dialogues with books and art. I consider how we access truth in the face of erasure and ask what it means for an immigrant to be at home. Chalim Go is author of two poetry collections, Islanders and Faraway Places. Her essays, poetry, and criticism have been or will be featured in the Georgia Review, Beloit Poetry Journal, Los Angeles Review of Books, PBS NewsHour, and The New Yorker. Chalim Go, uh, welcome to Access Utah. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, let's get the very important stuff out of the way first. Uh, you have an Erdos mm-hmm. number I'm reading. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> which, uh, explain for people <laughs> what an Erdos number is. Well, it's, I, I believe it's pronounced Erdish. And Erdish? His name was, okay. um, there was a mathematician, I believe, in the early 20th century named Paul Erdish, who was extremely pr- prolific. And he would, um, and he was kind of a, you know, itinerant guy. And he would go go around the world and stay with his mathematician friends. And because he's so smart, he will end up collaborating with them and publish papers. So he has like probably hundreds of collaborators and thousands of papers. And so in the math community, the he there's this concept of Erdős number. So Erdős is zero. And then if you are his direct collaborator you get Erdős number one. And if you get, if you collaborate with his collaborator, you get Erdős number two. So it's kind of like the Bacon number in, you know, in Hollywood. Right. And the, um, so, yes. The, the degrees so of separation. Of, you know, yeah. Yes. Um, and so I was, a, I was a math major as an undergrad. So I did work on a research paper with a professor who had Erdős number two. And therefore, I've heard it's number three. Yeah, yeah. That, well, well, congratulations. Um, and you say, this is, I'm reading this from your website, you're seeking opportunities to earn a finite Bacon number. You, I guess you'll look to collaborate with somebody who's collaborated with Kevin Bacon. Yes. Yeah, which, which one would day, be a, One day. One day, one day. That's the dream. Uh, so you uh, you grew up in Singapore, I understand? Yeah. Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, and you immigrated to America, what, 15 years ago or so? Um, I believe it's almost 20 years. 20 years now, yeah. You, uh, yeah. in fact, you won the, the lottery, right, uh, to get a work uh, permit? Oh, no, my, my husband did. Oh, oh, your husband did, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but you... Oh, that was before he was my husband. That's oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um... So you, you write about, uh, you know, not only your own immigration, but uh, immigration, especially of Chinese peoples. Um, we'll get into that. But mm-hmm. but American cultural influence reaches around the world, right? Uh, you write your very first essay here in Western Journeys. Mm-hmm. You talk about a visit to Monument Valley, which is iconic. Mm-hmm. You know, you've seen a bunch of Westerns. You've, you've seen, uh, you know, Monument Valley, at least on film. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, this line stood out. You said the landscape stood out, but also had an mm-hmm. uneasy sense of deja vu. So why deja vu? Well, because I had seen it in the movies. Mm. Um, it's like like you said, you know, American culture does you know has been exported around the world. 
Um, I would say to various degrees, and I guess, you know, part of it is also, you know, um, how how you were raised. You know, my, my parents were definitely fairly, you know, Western-looking. They were, they were educated in Britain. Um, they traveled to the, to the U.S. a fair bit before, before they had me. And um, so it's not to say that's the whole world that I grew up in, but that was part of it. And um, so, yeah, I grew up watching Westerns. I don't know why. Um, I, and um, so I've seen many of these landscapes of the American West before I even stepped foot in them. Um, so you talk about, you, you hadn't remembered very well the, kind of the iconic movie that features Monument Valley, Stage, mm-hmm. Stagecoach, right, John Wayne? This is the one that vaulted him to fame as a star. Um, mm-hmm. But you say, I, I guess after this, when you visited Monument Valley, you went back and watched uh, Stagecoach. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Um, it's. I think at that point, when I actually visited Monument Valley in person, I was already interested in you know, representations of the American West and what it, what it stands for. And so when I watched Stagecoach again, I, I watched it with that lens in mind. And it was, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't an interesting ex- experience because at that point I had, you know, a much better idea of um, how much the movie is, is kind of a fantasy, uh, you know, you know the myth of the, the myth of the cowboy. But at the same time, it was very compelling. I mean, I, I'll have to say that. And so it was a, it was an interesting experiment in trying to figure out wh- why is it so compelling, but also what are the issues in representing the West in terms of cowboys and Indians. Because the, the the reality of the American West, the history of the American West, is a lot more complicated than that. And you write that the, the, the Western was a reaction to the closing of the frontier. The frontier had been open, wide open. Mm-hmm. By the time these um, movies were being made, the, the you know, the West was, was uh, you know, closed in that sense. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, this is mythology in a sense, right? And 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 nostalgia. Um, and and you write yeah. nostalgia is powerful. It erases what's inconvenient for us to see. L- l- like what? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think a, a really good example is in a in a later essay that I write in the book about the Rock Springs Chinese massacre, and um, th- that happened on September second. 1885 in Rock Springs, Wyoming. It is um, the, the the long story short is what the white miners in Rock Springs revolted and uh, in the mines and uh, went on a rampage that ended up killing you know at least 28 Chinese miners and probably more. A lot of the Chinese fled into the hills, but that. But if you trace the history of the Chinese massacre, it it, it comes down to the the Union Pacific 
owned the coal mines. And the reason they owned the coal mines is they... The reason they owned the coal mines is that they built the railroad through that part of Wyoming because they, they could get the land. That was how the Pacific Railway Act worked. So I think of the railroads as the kind of the original manifest destiny. And the cowboy myth is, in a sense, trying to trying to keep that manifest destiny spirit alive. And so when I say that nostalgia kind of erases what's inconvenient, if you just look at the cowboy myth, you don't see things like the Rock Springs Chinese massacre. Yeah, uh, certainly true. And I want to get back Mm -hmm. to that later in our conversation, Uh, because I don't Mm -hmm. think that I don't think that history is very well known. I I hadn't known about it until I, you know, started reading your your book. Um, but you talk, uh, back to Monument Valley, um, mm-hmm. your parents drove, right? They were driving around the valley. You walked. Um, and well, it, I mean, that's, uh, part of it. It's not the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and you say, you quote Edward Abbey that, uh, that's really, you know, this, you, you see a lot more when you walk, which is certainly true, right? Yes. Yes. And you talk mm-hmm. about that you're you're walking on indigenous land, right? Indian land, mm-hmm. um, which is you know which is it's it's inverted in say stagecoach or in these westerns, right? The 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 Indian is if he does appear, he's he's the menace. Yes. Um. So, tell me a bit about. Um, well, let's move to uh, this idea of um, of immigration, and uh, some of this mm-hmm. history is known, but to some it's not known. I guess that's part of what you're trying to do here, especially Chinese immigration, Asian immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, the second essay here you uh, it's called Coastlines, and you talk yeah. about Angel Island. I think we know about Angel mm-hmm. Island but maybe not as much as we should. Uh, so Angel Island, somewhat equivalent to Ellis Island, I guess, but there, there are some key differences. Yes. So tell us about um, that. So so a- a- Angel Island, is, it was called um, Ellis Island of the West, but it's so where I, Ellis Island, I mean, I know that Ellis Island had had its issues, and I do know that it's, you know, it's not necessarily the most welcoming place, but um, Angel Island was designed specifically for exclusion. So in 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which, um, as the name implies, um, was uh, it was aimed at excluding Chinese of the laboring class. So there were exceptions for like merchants and diplomats and students, etc., as well as U.S. citizens and children of U.S. citizens. And, but then there's a question of how do you determine who is a laborer? And, you know, and the thing is, you know, a category like laborer is, you know, it's a class category. You know, someone could have been a laborer and then became a merchant, and how do you know what's the difference, or vice versa? Um, so in, um, in 1910, the... Um, the U.S. immigration set up 
the immigration station and detention center at Angel Island. And that was where Chinese who came to the U.S. is in San Francisco Bay. Uh, Those were the Chinese who came to the U.S. by San Francisco. They, They were ferried to Angel Island. And that was where the the immigration uh, petitions were processed. Some of them stayed on Angel Island for, I'll say on average, two weeks as the immigration officials tried to determine if they could land. Now, the question is, what do, what do I mean by they could land? Um, usually, if they were merchants and, you know, they could prove it easily, they didn't even go to Angel Island at all. They disembarked in San Francisco. But those who had to spend more time, they were they went to Angel Island, and that was the immigration officials would try to determine if they met one of the exemptions. The biggest one is families of U.S. citizens, um, and there was actually a system of what they call paper sends, where brokers would actually drop um, coaching papers to so that they would actually sell it to like fake sons. So like if a man claims he has two sons, for example, he could sell those two spots to men who are not related to him to claim to be his son. And they would actually make up stories to tell the immigration officials. And the immigration officials knew what was going on. So they tried to catch them with, you know, questions like where's the rice bin in your family home? And if the if the questions don't if the answers don't match then they were like, oh, this is not a real relationship. Um, so that's that's um, Angel Island. Many of them stayed for two or three weeks, but there are some, especially those who, whose um, cases were more complicated, who were denied the first time and appealed, could stay for months and possibly even years. Hmm. It was very poignant. I learned a lot reading your, your essays here. Um, you you had to, because the a lot of the records had been burned right in the earthquake and fire, uh, you had this interrogation. Yeah. So paper sons mm-hmm. actually had a bit of an advantage uh, because uh, you know you were before you immigrated, you were sent all the details, all the facts, so that you could match up the facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you memorized yeah. this and then threw the papers out uh, overboard before you landed. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Real sons, I guess, sometimes had a disadvantage because. You know, the father maybe like, remembered yeah, where the that. rice bin was and it was moved before the son. Maybe yeah. the facts wouldn't match up. And and this was yeah. high, this was high stakes, right? You write, I'm going to quote this line from, from your essay, failing their interrogations sure. meant failing their families. And some committed suicide instead of returning to China in shame. Yes, because um, for a lot of these families, when they send their sons abroad, it's because you know, they they needed the money. And so a lot of them, you know, spent all the savings to pay for the passage. Um, so first of all, is that there's already money invested in them. And then second of all, like they were the hope of the families. So not being able to enter America was, you know, con- considered a failure. So uh, a very interesting um and significant thing happened 
Um, mm-hmm. the, these immigrants on age of law, mm-hmm. some of them would, would write poems. They'd write things on the walls, right? Yes, they did. They, they, they wrote poems on the walls. Okay. They, this is what I understand is that f- first of all, First of all, that proves that actually a lot of these immigrants, even though they came as laborers, they were actually educated. They might not have been as well educated as they would have liked to be, but they were not uneducated. And um, and in in, in in what I understand too is that in Chinese culture, there's actually a kind of a subversive um, culture of writing of you know travelers writing poems and you know, whatever, but, you know, surfaces they could find, um, most often, you know, boards at inns and stuff. And so the Angel Island poems kind of is part of that tradition. The other part of the tradition is that a lot of the poems actually follow classical Chinese, um, you know, meters and rhyme schemes and forms. You write that in in Imperial China, it was a crime to write unofficial histories. It was kind of the background, mm-hmm. right? And so travelers would inscribe what amounted to subversive uh, thoughts anonymously, right, on poetry boards. But but even on trees yeah. and snow, which is <laughs> which is very poignant, right? Something as impermanent oh, yeah. as snow. The, yeah. the, that's an impulse, I guess, that probably all of us have, is to leave a record, right, to have our voice heard. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, I mean, that's true. I'm, I, I think there are many factors that go into it. Definitely to leave a record and get a voice heard, but it, you know these immigrants were also stuck in barracks, you know, for most of the day until uh, for days until they get the immigration uh, decisions or interviews. And how how do you pass the time? Hmm. Then understand that uh, th- these writings would have vanished altogether, mm-hmm. you write, instead of, if a park ranger had not spotted them before, the, these buildings were slated for demolition, I understand. Yes, it was slated for demolition in the 70s, I, I believe it was the 70s, and um, and, a, and there was a park, park ranger who, I believe he was asked to, to kind of check out the buildings before they demolished it, and he, he, he was a Jewish-American, and so he turned on his flashlight, and he's like, a lot of the words had already faded significantly at that point, but he could tell that there were scribblings on the wall, and so he he alerted um, he, he alerted both his superiors as well as um, some prominent Asian American um, scholars in San Francisco, and they started a mission to try and preserve as many as possible. Um, that is one part of it, but another part of it was in the 1930s, there were actually two um, Chinese detainees who, instead of writing their own poem, they actually spent their time copying down the poem. And so that was part of the records that we do have as well. Oh, interesting. They And then they probably had to smuggle this out, right? Probably yes. officials wouldn't, maybe wouldn't want this out. What kinds of things did, did people write on the walls? What kinds of things they wrote on the walls? Um, you know, it's it's kind of it's a, a lot of it is in the tradition of Chinese lyric poetry. So, 
you know, there's a lot about landscape. There's a lot about the cold and the fog and, you know, the isolation. But there's also, you know, anger directed at the U.S. I think they call Americans the barbarians. There, there was also, you know, anger at themselves for not, for not, for failing the interrogations because um, a lot of those who stayed long enough to write poems had failed the interrogations. Um, they, even, I mean, and also to kind of show how worldly they were. I mean, there were references to like Napoleon's exile and Santa Helena as well. Uh, an indication you said earlier that, uh, unlike the stereotype, uh, many of these folks were educated, at least to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you write and about. And there's yeah, one go more ahead. point, if mm-hmm. we don't mind. Yeah. Um, I and I'm not sure if I how much of this I said in Western Journeys is that all all the poems we have on record were found in a man's barracks, mm. and the the women's barracks um, there were. There were no records of what the women might have said, and for a long time, historians thought that the women were illiterate. But in oral histories, a lot of a few women detainees, the female detainees, said that they saw poems on their walls. It's probably a lot fewer than what were in the men's barracks, but they were there, and the women's barracks had actually burned down in a fire. In, it was in 1940, and that was the fire that closed the immigration station. Uh, I should mention here that uh, your your uh, your book Islanders imagines what mm-hmm. these, what these poems or you know what women would have written on the wall. Yes, indeed. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's that's very sad that, that uh, we've we've lost the, those women's voices there. Um, yeah. You talk about erasure. That's a, it's a big theme, you know, throughout mm-hmm. throughout this this collection. That's one form of erasure. Is you know, this women's barracks happen to be torn down. Um, also talked about it a bit with with that opening essay, right? That that the history is written as we see it in popular culture, mm-hmm. or or even as written in the histories, erases uh, certain populations, including. I guess Chinese Americans in some cases. Yes, and um, it's. I I feel that. I and I, I think this is true of every people and every culture. That there is a dominant narrative that tells us who we are, you know, where we came from, and it also implies where where we are going, and. It, it the the dominant narrative, you know, it privileges certain people and certain perspectives over others. You know, in the American West, a lot of it is I mean, essentially. I, I think of it as being embodied embodied by the cowboy myth, but in that myth, it and I feel it's so. It's almost like naturalized at this point in the sense that it feels as if it's nature and not like something that's created, but it erases or kind of speaks over many other stories that are on the ground and stories that are, 
you know, stories that perhaps better represent the experiences of people who lived through this through this history. Let's uh, take a break. Uh, when we come back, much more with uh, Chowlin Lim Go, whose uh, forthcoming collection of essays is called Western Journeys. That'll be published by University of Utah uh, Press. Previously, uh, poetry collections, Islanders, we made reference to that, and Faraway Places. And um, we will have much more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer Chow Lim Go, and her uh, forthcoming collection of essays is called Western Journeys, and that's what we're talking about on the uh, program today. So, uh, Chow Lim Go, I was fascinated. Um, you, you talk about your personal reaction to visiting some of these sites, get some of your personal history in here. This fascinated me. You say that, uh, I'm just going to quote this, though I sp- spoke some Chinese at home, the language has always felt abstract to me, an isolated academic subject rather than part of my identity. Uh, t- tell me about that. Well, I, I'm i sure um, my family in Singapore is going to hate this. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I grew up in Singapore, and it is, it was a former British colony, which means that English is the language of business and one of the official languages. It is also the language of school. So um, it, it was different during my parents' time, but during my time, um, you know, all our subjects were, held, were in English and Chinese was, you know, just one of many subjects. So the language that you spoke at so the language of your everyday life is different for different people. In in, in my family, my, my dad spoke Chinese, but my mom, I mean, she could speak um, the dialect, but she didn't speak Mandarin. And so English was the more common language that we, you know, we kind of spoke more English at home. And so, and I also... I think part of it is also inclination because I know my sister is much better at Chinese than I am. And, and I, I guess I was more drawn to, to Western culture. So I never, I studied Chinese for 12 years. And I will say at this point, my skills are limited to ordering off the menu at a Chinese restaurant, which is the important stuff. <laughs> that's the important stuff. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. true. Uh, so this is the this is the point that really fascinated me. You talk about a visit uh, you took with a friend to Angel Island, and mm-hmm. you're you're walking along. I'll just read this. Um, let's see. The crevices on the walls occasionally yielded the shape of a Chinese character, a word or two still legible from the poems. Most of the words looked familiar to me, but I could not pronounce them. As I walked along the peeling walls, I noticed two poems still legible in their entirety. I looked at the inscriptions with a mix of horror, terror, and familiarity. I had an inkling of what they said, even though I could barely read the words. I also recognized the way I tend to dissociate around Chinese language. Most strangely, I felt the rhythms, intonations, and lyricism of the poems, reverberations that began deep in my body. So that was an initial experience. Then your friend mm-hmm. read these in Mandarin, right? 
Um, yes. You say you couldn't process the emotions, really. Then you pressed a button on the signboard. A disembodied voice recited in Cantonese. Um, and uh, you said the words sounded strange to my ears. Images became abstract again. Then finally you experienced them in English. That's an interesting journey there, just in that one experience on Angel Island. Um, I, I will put it this way. Um, learning Chinese when I was in school was a struggle. It was a serious struggle. Um, I studied for 12 years. I was never good at it. Um, my grades were terrible. Um, and when I say terrible, I do not mean an Asian F, meaning an A minus. Um, it was less than that. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> the, the, I, I, so I, I'm not familiar with that. A minus is the Asian F. Yeah, I can. <laughs> that's that's kind of what so the way I, I went through school too. Yeah, go ahead. So, it, I, I maybe traumatic was is too much of a word, but. It was not a good experience, I would put it in those terms. And and the other thing is because just the way that the education system worked, if you if you didn't get good grades in Chinese, it penalized you even though if even if you did well in other subjects. So mm-hmm. so, the, so I do have a complicated history with the Chinese language. Mm-hmm. Um, but having looked at the Chinese characters for 12 years, you know, there is a certain level of familiarity, you know, and I I can still recognize some words. Um, And Cantonese is, um, is not, not my family's dialect, my family Hokkien, which is the next province over, but believe it or not, the two dialects are mutually unintelligible. Mm. Yeah. Uh, So I don't understand Cantonese at all. Yeah. I, I understand Hokkien fine. I don't speak it, but you know, my family spoke it, my grandparents spoke it. I could I can understand it, but I don't understand Cantonese at all. Mm. And obviously, you know, for better or for worse, English is the language that I'm most comfortable in. Which makes writing about the Chinese American history in the West a very interesting experience. Y- yes. Yeah, I I can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, so a related topic uh, in your essay, Firecracker, you uh, mm-hmm. you talk about celebrating the Chinese New Year. Your your Aunt Deborah, uh, mm-hmm. your, your mother's cousin, you say, wants you to, to come and, you know, let's celebrate the Chinese New Year. Uh, I want to read this. Um, this is uh, Chalim Go from Western Journeys. For most of my childhood, I associated the holiday with putting up appearances, constructing a false self to placate the family playing a role that conforms to other people's expectations. In the early years of my adulthood, I knew, even if I could not articulate it, that I had to strip away the masks and recover the self I had to hide. So how did you go away uh, about doing that? Um, by writing this book. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> um, um, I, you know, I, I think, well, I'm, I'm not sure if this is a universal experience, but I'm sure there are people, you know, in the U.S., there are people who experience, you know, similar feelings around, say, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, but I, I think for me, it was, it was true writing. And it was, like, like we discussed at the beginning of the show, I was a math major back in the day. I was not a, 
I was not a writing or literature major. I do have an MFA now, but it, I just finished that last year. Um, and so for me, writing wasn't like I I didn't you know grow up thinking like I want to be a writer. I didn't go to school thinking I want to be a writer. It was something I kind of I mean I was I would say fell into in one on one sense, but it was definitely a, con- a conscious decision to after college is that I had all these very intuitive thoughts that I was trying to figure out who I was, what I believed in, what I stood for, what I, you know, what I wanted to do, what I, who I wanted to be. And writing was the way that I tried to teach myself that stuff. And there, there are many ways of being a writer. I will say that first. But for me, a lot of it was having that solitude, that space to kind of face yourself on the page and face what you truly, you know, what you thought, who you, what you saw, what you thought and who you truly are. And it's also a mechanism to kind of, I'm, I'm not put it out there in the sense of publication, but put it out there putting it in a space that's outside of yourself. And that's how I worked through many of those questions. Mm. Yeah, that's the power of, of writing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, oh, yes. Tell me about your attraction to what, what, what you get out of what you find in the American West, especially the Colorado Plateau. You've, you've explored a, a lot of the Colorado Plateau. You know, I, I have been thinking, I have actually not been back to the Colorado Plateau in a while. I should go. I should return. But um, I remember the first time I saw the Colorado Plateau was I was, I had first, first moved to Denver. I think it was a couple months at a point. And um, my husband, who was the boyfriend then, um, we, I, we, we were going to L.A. to a friend's wedding. And being, you know, in your early 20s, we didn't really have to cash the flies. So we drove out there. And it, and we had no idea. Like, we had no idea what was between, on I-70, between Denver and Vegas, you know, on the way to L.A. And we drove through southern Utah, the San Rafael Swell. And it was... Like I said, we had literally no idea. We thought, like, this is going to be empty land. We're just going to speed through this and get to L.A. And it was astounding. It was amazing. It was, you know, the Red, the red Rock Desert. I, I, I remember going to Goblin Valley State Park, which is, I believe, near, I believe it's near Archer. And it's like, what is this place? Like, what? It's... At that point, is I didn't even have the words to describe what I saw. I mean, now, now, maybe I still don't, but it's. But I also see that you know, there's this wide open space that is kind of a land of, at least for me, it was a land of possibility, because it was not something I had seen before. It was not something I had experienced before. But at the same time, 
I felt that I could use this as a ground to figure out a lot of the questions that I was trying to ask at that time. You quote Edward Abbey a few times in the book, and it's it's always with mm-hmm. a, it's always with a disclaimer. You're, you're <laughs> you you know you agree, agree with a lot of what he had to say. You're admiring of uh, some of his viewpoints, but but not all. Tell me about that. Um, I I will say that I do I do think of Edward Abbey and especially Desert Solitaire as one of my foundational texts, in the sense that it. It was a text that helped me to understand, um, you know, the American West and especially the Colorado Plateau. Um, but like almost every human being on the world, he is also a very complicated man. Um, and I and I will say that for any text that I that I admire, I also disagree. Not necessarily Abby, but he's definitely especially cantankerous. And, um, you know, what I learned from him was how to inhabit a landscape, how to, you know, how to walk, like we discussed earlier, you know, how to walk through a landscape, how to, how to see, how to notice, and how to, you know, admire and appreciate and, def- and stand up for what you believe and defend what you believe and defend the places that you love. Right? At the same time, for example, he he was anti-immigration, and he was anti-immigration, and he used environmentalism as his argument to be anti-immigration. His his, his essentially essential argument was that, you know, immigration brings population growth, and population growth, you know, destroys the environment. Um, Immigrants are not the only people who destroy the environment. I'll just say that. Um, and, you know, Desert Solitaire, for example, I, you know, he, he made it sound like, you know, that he spent all this solitary time in the park. But if I'm not mistaken, I, I think he had at least a wife with him at a point and maybe a child. I, I'm not sure. So there, there's a lot of, you know, he had a lot of personal mismaking that excluded significant parts of his life. So that, so those those are the things that I I don't necessarily agree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, second of the break, um, when we come back, we'll go have our last segment with uh, Talim Go. Um, the uh, forthcoming uh, collection of essays from University of Utah Press is titled Western Journeys. And uh, we'll talk much more following this break. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer Chalem Go and uh, talking about her uh, upcoming uh, to be published Western Journeys. It's a collection of essays. It'll be out from University of Utah Press. So, Chalem Go. Um, I, you make some parallels between the Chinese Exclusion Act and uh, today, the, you know, the, the saying that prejudice continues. I think we, you know, we see that uh-huh. it's, I mean, the parallels are pretty, pretty stark. Um, th- this targeted the other, right? The, the unappealing, the undesirable other very directly, uh-huh. the Chinese specifically, right? 
Uh, there was concern yes. about jobs. These, these people are taking our jobs. You hear that today. And uh, there was concern yes. uh, these folks uh, aren't assimilating or we're, we're fearing that they won't assimilate. And you hear that today. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I, well, let's go back to the par- parallels between the Chinese exclusion era and now. Um, you know, in the in the um, eighteen seventy three, there was a big bank crash. Well, before that, there was sixty nine was when the transcontinental railroad was completed. A lot of Chinese, um, a lot of the earliest Chinese immigrants came to work on the railroad, and once that was completed, they were out of they were out of work, and they were trying to find work still in the U.S. And, you know, four years after that, there was a big bank crash that was caused by railroad speculation. Um, and the, this was, the crash actually closed the New York Stock Exchange for 10 days. So that was how bad it was. Um, so there was this period of economic probation, which parallels what's happening now. You know, in 2008, we have the big housing crash. And, um, and, for many people, the, the economy has not has not truly recovered. I know for some it has, but you know the economy has changed that you know, and not necessarily for the better. And um, so there's a lot of economic frustration. And during and when and a lot of people are feeling that this. You know that they have that they're stuck. That that no, like they can't. You know, not not even to say get ahead with life, but kind of have a life. And for 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 some people, they take out the frustration on people who they see as the other. You know, who see as who they see as undesirable. Um, it is. Well, it is true that, um, you know, for example, Asian anti-Asian hate crimes have increased, especially in the last couple of years, and which, by the way, is also, was also a, an economic crash for many people. Um, I, now, the I would say that the the target immigrant group tends tends to be more um, the uh, the Latin Americans. In under the, the southern border, and um, during the Trump administration, it was also um, people from Muslim majority countries. So it so it is a phenomenon that's not just is not not just targeted towards the Chinese now, but towards many other groups as well. Um. Tell me a little bit. I promise I'd loop back to this. You, you were talking a sure. bit about the the Rock Springs uh, massacre, um, mm-hmm. which I hadn't known about. This what what does it do to, I guess, unerase to to excavate the, this this history? What's what's the value there? Do you think? Sure. sure. So the Rock Springs massacre happened on September second, eighteen eighty five, but its roots actually. Um, came it, it was its roots came from a, a worker strike in 1875. That's ten years before it actually happened, and that was when 
the the miners in Rock Springs went on strike to pr- protest the wage cut, and because um, the Union Pacific, instead of you know, instead of giving of restoring their wages, used Chinese workers as strike breakers, as scabs. And so it's the root of the Rock Springs massacre is in is in labor struggle. It is in economic issues, but and it's also you know the Union Pacific understood the racial dynamics there, and knew that by bringing in Chinese workers, they could divide and conquer the workforce. Um, if you if you want to go back further again remember this is 1875 there was a big crash in 1873 like i just said so that was a time where workers were already not doing well um the other reason that there was a wage cut in 1875 was that jay gould who was one of the robber barons of that era he had purchased the union the union pacific and he was looking at ways to cut costs. Yeah, that's that, that, that was part of the history that really struck me. That, you, you, mm-hmm. <laughs> reducing the wages again and again and uh, increasing demands of, of work, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Led to the strike, and then you bring in strike breakers, right? And then that just increases yeah. the, the, the racial you know, tension. Which which leads to, yes. to that, and you see some themes uh, like that uh, today. Um, we just have yes. about three or four minutes left in the conversation. I, I was sure. uh, very struck by the last essay in the in the book. I want to have you talk a little bit about that. It's titled "The Dehumanizing Politics of Likability." I just want to read uh, just a portion of the first paragraph here and have you talk about this. You say, we're living in a political and cultural moment increasingly defined by dehumanization. You give some examples of, of that. Um, debates ranging around women presidential candidates. Much of discrimination dismissal seems to revolve around the likability-unlikability axis. The vituperative dialogue on social media rages in an environment of anonymity that breeds an inability to treat anybody, anyone, likable or not, with civility and respect. Meanwhile, many of us stand by silent, helpless in our discomfort, but this all begs the question, why is likability even relevant? You want to talk about uh, your your book Islanders and how you know it kind of came up when when that book was published. Tell me just briefly about this. Sure. So so when Islanders was was published back in 2016, um, the, the I, I was I had an interview. It was um, it was a phone interview, but with, with a journalist, and um, and she asked the question like, why did I make the woman the Chinese woman who at Angel Island, whose poems I was trying to, um, not to say revise, but I was trying to write into that history. Like, why did I make them unlikable? Like, you know, they were cheating on their husbands, you know, things, things like that. And uh, my answers back then didn't make it into the final print, but I still kept thinking about it. And I, and what, what I re- realized was that, first of all, I was I wasn't deliberately thinking about likable versus unlikable. I was thinking about like these are hu- these are human beings and what would they do in this traumatic situation. And for example, the the I had stories of 
husbands who were waiting for their wives on Angel Island, and they were they visited brothels instead because they needed the comfort, which, you know, which happened, and which is an understandably human impulse, even though it's not necessarily a likable or moral one. And but the more I thought about it, I realized that I was trying to in in immigration, there's this idea of the good immigrant versus the bad immigrant. You know, the good immigrants, you know, they are well-educated. They do the right things. The bad immigrants, you know, they do all these unlikable things. And I was trying to ask, you know, at what point, you know, do we do we decide that someone is not deserving of human rights? There was also, there's also the additional thing that... Um, most women who came to to the U.S. were sponsored by by husbands, and so they had to prove the the legitimacy of the marriage. And if the husband was out seeing prostitutes, was waiting for the wife to to get off Angel Island, is the marriage legitimate? You know, in the I mean, in the eyes of the law, you know, if you say the strict letter of the law, it wouldn't have been. But again. You know, these are uh, very human people doing very human things. Mm. And I guess it's uh, maybe easier, well, it is easier for us to stereotype, right? So we need hooks to, to, yeah. to put people and things on, but we're, each of us are messy and, and human. Well, we reached the yeah. uh, the end of our time here. There's much else to, to read in this book. It's uh, forthcoming from University of Utah Press. It's called Western Journeys. And uh, if you'd like to uh, learn more about Chalim Go, you can go to chalimgo.com, uh, her website. So we've been talking with the writer Chalim Go. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.